Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, Senior Scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Just as she did a couple weeks ago, Dr. Nuzzo has agreed to answer questions that have been coming in about the novel coronavirus. Let's listen. Thank you, Dr. Nuzzo, for joining me again today. Um, first, I just want to ask what has struck you as new and important in this week's news about the coronavirus? There's a few things that happened this week. Uh, one is that the whole notion of testing has become a bit of a national part of the national conversation. There have been uh, lots of debates um, at the political level as to how much testing is necessary and whether we need to even expand our testing at all. Um, it was frequent subject of President's uh, coronavirus task force meetings. Um, we heard stories of governors trying to import tests from uh, other countries and um, a president unhappy with that. So testing this week has been an interesting uh, conversation on, in the political realm. And, and what, what's your view on that? Are we doing enough testing in the United States? I do not think that we're doing enough testing. Compared to other countries, we are testing a smaller percentage of our population. Um, we are doing a smaller number of tests per confirmed cases, that confirmed case. And if you look at the percentage in different parts of the U.S. that are testing positive, it is quite high, suggesting that probably only the sickest of the sick are getting tested. The Atlantic did an interesting analysis looking at um, the, the relationship between confirmed cases and tests. And you see that as of late, they track each other very, very closely, suggesting that we are only finding as many cases as we test for. Interesting. What do you make of the fact that some uh, governors are moving pretty rapidly to open, um, some as soon as this week with, you know, uh, barber shops and beauty salons and other places like that where social distancing isn't really possible? Yeah, so it, again, also comes back to testing. And my concern for states is, first of all, do they really know what level of infection is occurring in their communities. And in order to know that, they have to be doing fairly aggressive testing. Um, if they're in a situation like many places are, where the majority of the people who are sick are not able to be tested, then if they're only looking at their case numbers, they're getting a very possibly wrong view of how much illness is out there. Secondly, if they are to make decisions about reopening, it should be because they have a sustained decline in, in a variety of different data streams. So not just their confirmed cases, but um, their percent positivity, the percentage of tests that are coming back that are positive. They should have confidence that they're seeing this throughout their state and not just clustered in a few areas, um, ignoring others. So there needs to be a much more nuanced assessment of when it may be time to think about releasing the measures. 
And then when they do get to that point where they do feel confident, it has to be a really deliberate and stepwise approach because the social distancing measures that are put in place do not stop the spread of the virus. They're not a cure. They are a pause button that allows us to try to slow the spread enough to have a next phase. And the next phase has to um, have resources and a strategy in order to deal with the new cases that will arise once the measures are released. So things like contact tracing, incredibly resource intensive, but quite important for COVID-19. Um, being able to test anyone who is sick and possibly thinking about testing high-risk groups that aren't sick. So there's a lot of you know, resources and, and plans that need to be put into place in order to do that. And then even if those are in place, which businesses we reopen, I think, is something that's worthy of conversation. In my view, probably hair salons represent maybe one of the riskier environments because you're standing very close to somebody you know, potentially being exposed to them, speaking to each other closely over, you know, for women or for people with more complicated hairstyles, it could be ours. So um, anyway, I, I I really think that they need to take a very cautious and, and you know, evidence-informed sort of rational approach to thinking about which businesses can, can reopen. Let me um, now turn to the questions we've been getting through public health question at jhu.edu. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, so one question has to do with these uh, studies coming out of California, one in Santa Clara County suggesting maybe one and a half percent of the population has been exposed to the coronavirus, and one in Los Angeles suggesting maybe four percent have been exposed. What do you make of those studies? So first of all, I think the idea that there are many more cases out there than show up in our surveillance numbers is probably not controversial. I also think that serology is really an important tool that we need to figure out how to use so that we can get better estimates of what proportion of our population is already infected. Right. And these these studies were based on serology, antibody testing. Basically. Right. Right. That said, uh, I don't think a lot of detail has really come out about the studies fully. But as for the, the actual studies themselves, I mean, I think there are some initial questions about how Uh, They calculated these percentages and whether these percentages can be applied to the population at whole. If you're going to sample a small portion of the population, um, you need to do that in a very careful and well-planned way in order to be able to generalize your findings to a larger population. And I think there have been some questions about the approach taken. Often it's hard to, to test the way you want to because of resource constraints. So I think there are some overarching questions about these studies and whether the results truly generalize. But an important point to make is that some people want to look at this study and say, wow, so many people already have it. We're probably good to go. There's immunity in the population. We are uh, less worried or less concerned about the, the future spread of this disease as a result. What do you think about those conclusions? I think that's a very, I do not... That is not what I take from them. I mean, I think these all of the serology studies that have been done to date have um, come back with percentages that are interesting to learn about, but certainly not reassuring from a future disease burden perspective, meaning that I think all of them so far indicate that there's still a whole lot of people who haven't yet been infected. Right. So even if you were to take these on face value, it'd be like more than 95% of people are still unexposed and potentially at risk, which means there'd be danger and just opening right back up. 
Right. And one thing we don't know in terms of the, some of these studies, they do really do range in their results. And the, the technology for, for doing these tests can vary. And um, there are still uh, questions around how to interpret the results. So I think this is still just very early area of research, um, an important area of research, but we shouldn't overinterpret results from these early studies. Got it. Um, next question. Many viruses have come from bats, but bats are immune to them. Can we learn something from bats that would help us fight the virus in humans? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I know there is a community of wildlife biologists and vets and other animal health experts who do study bats for that reason. It's not just uh, coronavirus. There are other viruses uh, like Nipah that are associated with bats. And so I think it's important to study bats, not only to understand what future diseases um, we may need to anticipate, but also if there are protective effects in bats, could that be applied to humans? I think those are really important areas of research. Great. Here's a question from someone who wrote, I sometimes get an allergic cough in the spring and fall, but my daughter is just recovering from COVID-19. How can I tell whether my occasional cough is allergy or COVID? So this is a really difficult thing, and I think it's hard for people to know for certain whether they have it based on symptoms, because though there are some common symptoms, if, if you read different case series of people who have had COVID-19, it, it varies between uh, individuals. So um, as a contact of a known case, you should be eligible to be tested, and I think that's the best way to know for sure. We know that some people who are infected have very mild symptoms that they may not even notice, and so certainly until you're tested, you should not go out and expose other people. But I think it's if you have been exposed to someone um, with the virus, I think it's a reasonable idea to try to be tested if if that's available where you are. We know that testing constraints um, in a lot of the country is such that um, they don't want people to come and get tested. They don't have the resources to do that. And they would prefer that people just sort of self-treat. And if that's the situation where you live, then I think you know, staying home and trying not to expose others in the home until your, your cough goes away. It's tough though in the spring with allergens and particularly if that if that lingers. And I would consult a, a medical professional specifically on that. That sounds like good advice. But just, just to clarify one thing, if somebody is exposed but doesn't have symptoms, then they really should be uh, quarantined for two weeks, no matter what their test result is, because they could be incubating the virus with a negative test for a while there. Is that fair to say? In other words, if if somebody is exposed, they may test negative, but then the next day actually start expressing the virus. Oh, right. Absolutely. And anyone who knows that they were exposed to a case uh, should stay home um, for two weeks because you could develop infection at, at any point and you may not know it. And then whether or not you're able to be tested during that window depends on where you live. Right. But even if you were to test negative, say, on day three, that doesn't mean you can walk around the city at that point. Right, exactly. Um, you can develop the infection later. It's not like it's not like a kind of test where you you get it once and you know your status forever. It's 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 a much more dynamic process than that. Great. Here's a question about the wet markets in China, and you know they're widely believed to be a, a source of new infections, potentially, obviously, including this coronavirus. Um, should they be shut down? So wet markets have um, come up in a, in a number of contexts, certainly this uh, current COVID-19 situation, as well as the 
2003 SARS epidemic, which was linked to a wet market. Um, the challenge with COVID-19, I'll just say, is that we don't actually know much about the wet market that was involved. Um, we know the initial cluster of patients that were seen by clinicians had an occupational connection there, but we don't fully know if they, if and how they became infected in the wet market. It's possible that the virus was circulating in the population and just somebody who worked at the wet market had it and spread it to others. So we don't know that it came from the animals in the wet market. That said, wet markets are have been identified as places of risk for the potential of animal viruses to spill over into human viruses. And so I think there is an active conversation about what to do about that. Some may argue for shutting it down, but we have to worry whether it will just drive the, the practice underground in a way that authorities are unable to see or um, regulate. And so others are, maybe advocate more for regulatory approaches to make sure that the, when they occur, they occur as safely as possible, as cleanly as possible, et cetera. Got it. Okay, here's, here's a quick series of questions. Can the virus move on one skin independently? If it lands on your arm, can it crawl somewhere without your brushing or blowing it? Fortunately, viruses cannot crawl. And if you think there's a virus on your arm, the best thing to do is to try to wash it off with soap and water. Great. If it lands outside of your nose, could the wind created by walking move it to inside of your nose? Uh, it seems unlikely to me. Um, chances are if it lands, it's a, it's a droplet. It'd have to be quite windy to move that droplet. But again, if you think it's there, first of all, you could even just wipe it off with something or ideally wash your face. And it, this question finally ends with, what about brushing it off with your hands? That's probably the, the last thing I'd want to brush it off with. And if you did, I would probably try to use a part of your hand that you're not likely to then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth with. But, you know, maybe a sleeve and then remember to wash your shirt, something like that. Got it. Do healthcare workers, if they have contact with infected patients, have to quarantine themselves for 14 days? So it depends on the policy of where they work. That said, initially, some um, hospitals and, and other health clinics did have those policies, but quickly realized that it wasn't sustainable because the number of healthcare workers who would potentially fall into that category and then would need to have to stay home, they wouldn't be able, the, the facility would not be able to continue to, op would not continue to operate if everyone had to, who was exposed had to stay home. So I think in, in a lot of places at this point, it's more of symptom monitoring. And if there is an exposure to potentially use a mask or some kind of personal protective equipment to prevent any incubating virus um, from being spread to others in that period before they may develop symptoms or, or, or even if they don't develop symptoms. But um, it may be that testing is, is helpful in, in some of these situations. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal state, I think we would be doing a lot more surveillance of health workers just to uh, monitor their exposures and, and subsequent infections. That has been limited by the amount of testing that's available. But I think if we get to the point where more testing is available, then we should potentially consider, you know, more regular testing of, of healthcare workers, even absent symptoms. So we got an email from a dietitian who wanted to know about the height and weight of those who have contracted COVID-19. Is there any information about that question? Yeah, so the height and weights of the individual patients hasn't been released, but um, there is some evidence that obesity may be tied to severe outcomes like uh, requiring intensive care or, or um, ventilation. There was a, a study from New York City that was published in the New England Journal that showed that the patients who required 
uh, ventilation, it was a higher percentage who were obese compared to those patients who did not require um, mechanical ventilation, suggesting that maybe obesity could be linked to um, severe disease. Great. And thank you for, for that information. Last question. Can you explain why some people are asymptomatic, but other people get symptoms and in fact can get quite ill? And is that difference really important to understand to figure out what a treatment might be? I wish I could explain why that happens, but we don't yet know. It would be very important to know, um, one, because it might help us uh, improve our surveillance for the virus, but also it might help us better understand how we can protect people from the virus if there are characteristics on the host side, maybe those are things that could be developed into future treatments. Or if there are characteristics on the virus and the exposure side, maybe people are exposed in certain ways and that makes them more likely to become symptomatically ill. You know, perhaps we could learn how better to protect people with that knowledge. So I think this is a really interesting and a very important area of future research, but we don't right now know why some people never develop any symptoms and some people get severely ill. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nazo. I think every time we talk, we learn both what we now know and what is still outstanding, uh, such as important questions like that one. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.